Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. And we have some music today from Native Nate and Moke Music out of Boulder, Colorado. I make reggae, spiritual reggae, holy reggae, godly reggae. I will not accept Russian Russian and today I'm speaking with Chris Emerson. Chris is an integral spiritual coach, trained therapist, and Chris shares with us this concept of spiritual emergencies that what can sometimes be seen and diagnosed as a severe mental health issue could actually be a kind of breakdown preceding a breakthrough that he works with people to reframe some of these experiences to see them as spiritual experiences, spiritual breakthroughs. And this was a concept pioneered by Stan Groff, Czech psychiatrist, who is also famous for many experience, experiments involving LSD in the 60s. And Stan Groff later developed holotropic breathwork to facilitate states of altered consciousness so that people could go deeper into their subconscious and unconscious material without the use of psychotropics. And he developed this concept of spiritual emergency since we live in such a materialistic, consumer-based society that doesn't honor the more spiritual or inner dimensions of life often. And he drew parallels between indigenous cultures, which would often treat things and see them in more shamanic or spiritual terms. And part of what me and Chris talk about that is around this uh, self-identity. If you have an experience where your sense of yourself and your personal identity radically shifts, given the right context and teachings and practices and therapeutic work, that could be a major transformation where you transcend your small self into something larger. But it could also be very destabilizing. And so we discuss the very real possibility that some of what gets diagnosed as mental health breakdowns could actually fit into this category of spiritual emergencies. And Chris courageously and vulnerably shares with us his own journey with mental health and receiving a diagnosis and working through our very broken mental health system. So I really appreciated him sharing that. And Chris and I actually went to the same university called Naropa University. It is a Buddhist-inspired, mindfulness-based, more alternative approach to learning to be a therapist and mental health. And we discussed some of the pros and cons of that experience. And I just wanted to use a little bit of time in this intro to share some of my own thoughts. And that is that Naropa University is not the easiest place to be a man. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think it's good to be challenged. I think the Me Too movement is really good. I think that looking at negative aspects of our culture and society and changing them for the better is a really good thing. I mean, one way where I see it becoming problematic is when you take generalizations about culture or society at large and direct them at an individual, or where you're having a classroom experience where people are processing their emotions and their own psychological material, but you're not making space for the one man you know, in the classroom out of six or seven people, since the classroom sizes do tend to be quite small there. The Naropa School of Graduate Psychology is about 80% women. And this is typical for the field of mental health in general, and I think that too is a good thing. Um, but a downside of it is, you know, out of 
maybe a hundred people in a graduating class. You know, in the three, you know, in the three years that I was there, I met four men who left Naropa early, at least in part because of what they felt was their treatment around their identity as a man or a cisgender heterosexual man. Um, I know several more who had to take an extra semester or even an entire year to graduate due to issues they saw arising from this realm. And if you don't believe me that this is a real problem, I recently learned that the Naropa University had investigation into these issues. And I think part of their motivation is they just don't want to lose the tuition, you know. But I think they also want to create an atmosphere that is welcoming to everyone, which, you know, in theory is their intention. If you want to learn more about the state of the university across America in general, I would recommend The Coddling of the American Mind, a book by the psychologist Jonathan Haidt. So these are a few of my own thoughts on this topic. They're not the thoughts or opinions of Chris or anyone else. And I just wanted to bring part of this conversation into the podcast here. And hopefully something that I will get to explore more in the future with future guests. And now, without further ado, I bring you Chris Emerson. Hello, I'm here today with my friend Chris Emerson. Hi. Chris, Hello. thanks for being on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you're working as a therapist and coach now, is that right? Yeah, I've been with uh, Windhorse Community Services for over five years. Um, they are a Buddhist sort of inspired based mental health um, counseling agency um, here in Boulder. And yeah, work with clients like in their own home environments. Um, oh, cool. It's yeah. a really cool organization where my understanding is you try to provide a healthy environment for people and the kind of health, like living in a good environment then will help their mental health. Exactly. I mean, the current mental health system obviously like leaves a lot to be desired. Um, <clears throat> and one of the problems is that like, you know, when people get institutionalized, they're often like put around like a bunch of other people who are not doing well either, which just leads to more um, confusion. and. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right, so if you're in like the psych ward at a hospital and everyone around you is kind of acting out, it can, it's not going to help you to stabilize. Yeah, part of like Windhorse's idea is that like if you surround this person with, with people who are in touch with their own <clears throat> basic sanity and have different practices, mm -hmm. you know, for increasing like compassion and wellness, that like that will kind of uh, – it will be contagious and it will, you know, infuse itself into the client. I like yeah. that. Yeah. It's like the, the power of culture, of society, of the people around us influence us so much. And I think, you know, more and more science coming out showing mirror neurons, showing neurologically how that can happen. But exactly. we, we all know that just in our personal experience. If you're around a group of angry people, you'll start to feel anxious or angry. You know, these emotions are like contagious. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, kind of part of our job is to, I feel sometimes like a, um, uh, like a garbage disposal or something. Like I'm, you know, like just, just taking on a lot of the client stuff and, and transmuting it and changing it. Oh, interesting. Um, and yeah, so it's a lot of, it can be a lot of heavy lifting for the, you know, the clinicians, but it's also nice that, I mean, the way that it's different too from like the psych ward is that the psych ward will have like one staff person to like 12 clients and we flip it on the other direction. So it's like there's 12 staff for like one client. Wow. Sometimes it varies, but it's like beautiful. 
it's beautiful and it's very expensive. And mm. so like we literally are only serving like the the children of the 1% right now. Um, and mm. so, well, I mean, that's, that's such an issue in the whole mental health field is, is money and the lack of insurance and lack mm-hmm. of support. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, on the side too, I am like working on my own coaching business. Um, I do want to, like, since I graduated, I've been getting the ball rolling, um, with that. And like, I do want to work with, I mean, one of the huge problems I see is that like, we do have a lot of spiritually like inclined people who get labeled, you know, or misdiagnosed within the mental health system. Right. And yeah. This is something that, that you wanted to talk about today. So this mm-hmm. idea that you could be having, uh, for lack of a better word, spiritual, I mean, it's spiritual, it's kind of an odd word, but a spiritual experience that could be contributing to your growth, to insight, to connecting with something larger than yourself that could be interpreted as a mental health issue. Exactly. I mean, I, I agree. Spiritual is a weird word because it, for one, it like separates <laughs> spiritual and matter. I mean, uh, spirit right. and matter, but you know, there's actually no, no separation there. <laughs> um, and so it does create this image in the mind of, of, of duality. Um, yeah. And it kind of conjures up this idea of spirits or ghosts, <laughs> right, or something, right, right. That are immaterial <laughs> and that, and it could have that meaning, but, but you know, in the way we're using it, the way it's normally used, it's, it's referring to the kind of religious dimension of our psyche, right? It's, it's, meaning it's it's transcendent meaning or greater i don't know the experience of connecting to something larger than yourself is one way that i talk about it yeah and in this moment i mean i'll use it to refer to like a a a vaster experience yeah of of reality um that like goes beyond just the kind of physical you know um attachment that most of us are used to and i think i see that as part of the problem is that like there is almost like an addiction to this 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 physical reality that we have, and anyone that um, starts exploring more of the like imaginal or because like a lot of these people who get diagnosed, they're very creative people, <laughs> and they mm-hmm. they can kind of like spin out into these subtle realms, and these are like the same realms that we experience at night when we're dreaming. Um, like when you're dreaming at night, a lot of people don't remember their dreams, but like you're in a very different world. Like things yeah. are more malleable and changeable. And, and I mean, that's a good point. If we, you know, if you can really remember your dreams and like dream journaling can help, but, like we're all completely crazy. I mean, our dreams are just insane. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. then, and the, the amazing thing is you don't, in the dream so often, like, you know, most of the time you don't question it. Yeah. But, like maybe, uh, you know, someone has the head of a cat or... <laughs> Just, you know, all kinds of random weird things that just don't make any logical sense. And then in that experience, you're just like, oh, this door opens out onto the beach now. Yeah, you just go with it. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny going back and reading over my dream journals because every other word is like weird or strange. It's like I went in this weird building and saw this strange guy who was doing these weird things. And like, <laughs> it just speaks to like, yeah, how different it is. Yeah. Well, um, so, I mean, part of what you're speaking to is is use the word spiritual emergency, right? Yeah. Define that for us. Yeah. So I define spiritual emergency. So for one, there's like, there's kind of two camps in this field. And one is like the camp of people who say that like all of these like, you know, crises are a hundred percent like spiritual and signs of like super health. And so all these people that are having these breakdowns and stuff are just shamans and they're misunderstood. And, you know, if they were in a different culture, it'd be different. Right. Um, and there's some truth to that. And there is. And, and, and then there, there's the other camp that, that says it's all pathological, you know, that everything that's happening here is, um, you know, it's a mental illness. It's a chemical imbalance. It's, mm. you know, um, 
it's it's some kind of um, trauma or pathology. You know, something went wrong in the person's development, and I think it's both. Like, I think, I mean, mm. I think that there there can be temporary, you know, things going on chemically with the brain. Um, there can be. I mean, one of my problems with psychiatry is that they, you know, make this claim that you know you can have this permanent chemical imbalance, genetic disorder, without actually giving you evidence for that. Um, and so I, the evidence hasn't been found. It hasn't been found, and and maybe they will at some point, but maybe they never will. Maybe it's something that you just—it's never going to, you know, show up on some kind of like you know the the the, the right. scientific markers that they're used to doing. Well, there, they, there is clear evidence that um, schizophrenia and bipolar run in families. Yeah, um, but that's still—it's a little tricky to separate the the nature nurture aspect of that too, mm. um, because yeah, it could be just partially due to the, that they were raised in this kind of environment. Um, but it's also, um, you know, we do have brain brain scans, and brain scans are, you know, one of the more promising ways to start showing correlations between, you know, chemistry and, and these mind states. Um, but even brain scans, like, they're just showing a temporary state that, that mm. can be changed. Part of the big problem is that, like, the brain is so complex. Like, we, we literally can't even – we're learning so much about it that we – we still can't even say what like healthy brain chemistry or normal brain chemistry looks like. So we can't say what unhealthy brain chemistry right, looks this, like. I think a lot of people um, don't quite get how much neuroscience is in its infancy. Yeah. And so I'm very skeptical when I'll see people like making these big grand claims and they're, they have their little pet theory or they have their own little psychology modality that they've trademarked and then they're explaining everything in terms of neuroscience. And the reality is we don't know. We're, we're still learning. We, we get these brain scans and we're interpreting them. And uh, it, it's not an exact science right now. Not at all. We're guinea pigs. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. just guinea pigs. Yeah. And I think that's that's just important to remember. Like if you're, you know, even if you're taking like an intro to neuroscience class or something, it, it's just like where the science is now compared to where it will be in 10 years. Like a lot of things that are now being taught will likely be turned on their head. Exactly. No, I, yeah. I do think that a lot of this is going to look really barbaric. Um, yeah. They'll look back and be like, wow, really? You were like giving people these drugs that just, you know, like go through the blood brain barrier and like, you know, you're, you're playing with, you know, <laughs> something really intense. Yeah. There. <laughs> giving people lots of medication because it's so much easier to just yeah. give someone a pill and then it's changing their, their chemistry for potentially for the rest of their life. I mean, yeah. some, a lot of these um, antipsychotic drugs, you start off on small doses and you build up and the effects are really only felt after a few weeks and then you can't just stop. You have right. to taper down. I mean, there's very serious impacts they have. With a lot of uh, side effects that aren't good either, like weight gain and like people like kind of a lot of them seem to like really slow down people's mental processes. And that is why people on psych meds can seem slower or even stupider. I hate to use that word, but it, it slows down your thought process. So. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the transitions that we're, we're going through as a culture is from this suppressive model, you know, to a exploratory <laughs> model. And so like what we've been doing is like suppressing symptoms. And that's what these medications do. It's like they inhibit certain chemicals from firing or they kind of excite certain chemicals that need to be firing. Um, whereas an exploratory model, and this, this also ties into like the whole psychedelic, you know, therapy mm. thing that's emerging. Yeah is basically saying like, hey, like, let's actually explore, you know, the root of what's going on, you know. And that was actually, I mean, mm. one of the things that really, because um, I personally went through the, a spiritual crisis and I got labeled bipolar. and Yeah. So um, let's go back to that, this idea yeah. of spiritual crisis. Like, do you want to speak to that more? Yeah. So um, I, so personally, on a personal level, like I had a very spiritually inclined childhood. Like um, you were always drawn to that 
interest? I, or? Yeah, I kind of like just came in already. Um, See, I think that's fascinating. I think a lot of people have that calling. And maybe in a lot of traditional cultures, there was the shaman or the medicine man. And maybe in other cultures and other times, there was the priest or priestess, or there was always a role. It's always been a part of human culture. We live in a day and age where, in a culture where that is kind of just forgotten about. And yeah, there there are cultures where it's called a tulku, where you get recognized as a young right. kid. In the Himalayas. Yeah. Himalayas in Tibet and China, yeah. Yeah, and so then you're, whatever, whisked off to a monastery, and, you know, your whole life is is raised to become a spiritual master. And so I think, you know, I mean, I, I think I chose to come here knowing that I wouldn't be, you know, in a in a culture that would recognize me as such. Um in order to to help you know move things along, but I think like you know to get pretty out there for a moment, um, there's this notion of um, star seeds, which is this idea that like um, beings are been, are 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 incarnating onto Earth now at this time because the Earth is like like Mother Earth like basically made a nine one one call like emergency like things are not you know. Um, going in a good direction, and so we need to call in like the whatever cosmic crisis team. <laughs> um, and so um, I do identify. I do so identify. Yeah, this idea that Mother Earth is in a bit of crisis, and that sends out an SOS, and yeah. so that beings are taking birth here who would help or improve. Or yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard that, but I I like it. Yeah, and so and so it happens in waves too, and. Um, they're sometimes broken up into the indigo children, the crystal, crystal children, and then the rainbow children. Um, and the indigo children are like the ones that are the ones they're, – they're the ones who break down the old systems. And so they're often like um, – you can think of like the kind of punk uh, archetype of like wearing tattoos and piercings. And huh. um, they're here to like to, – to, just to destroy and kind of put the middle finger to the man and, you know, all that stuff. Um, all, all the all the systems that are not working and are kind of insulting their soul. Um, mm. And so I think about like, yeah, bands like Death Grips and other just like, you know, really intense um, beings who are very powerful um, cha- game changers, basically. And then there's the Crystal Children um, who are more about like constructing like the new reality. They're, yeah. they're builders. So, and Yeah, I've never heard all this. Where, where is this coming from? Um, this is coming from... People who can channel the Akashic records. So the Akashic, have you heard of like morpho- morphogenetic fields? <laughs> yeah, as uh, a Sheldrake. Yeah. Sheldrake? So it's the idea that like there is this like storehouse consciousness. Um, in, that, in Buddhist, that's called the Alaya Vijnana. Right. Vijnanya. Right. Yeah, right. The um, and so yeah, I mean, I'm basically I, I personally cannot access this library of, of information, but um, there are beings that can, and I tend to trust you know their their sense of things, and it also like. There is this quality of like um, things resonating, um, like um, yeah, that's interesting. I'm just, yeah. So I'm not going to say that. I think in the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist traditions, it might not be the exact same as that, but it certainly is similar that we're all connected and that there's this oceanic level of consciousness out of which our experience arises that's created by karma and stuff. And, exactly. And then I, I just wanted to say, like when earlier you mentioned tolkus, that's you know from the Tibetan Himalayan region, and I think I said China, and it's really not China. So I just wanted to correct myself. Okay. In that regard, but yeah, let's get back to what you're saying. So yeah, crystal children are more, they're more like understanding of the old paradigm or of the, just like the, you know, the, the current situation in the world. Um, 
and they work with it and they and they and they help like build these new systems on top of it. I do think of someone like oh. Ken Wilber with with Crystal yeah. Children. So where they're more constructive. Yeah. So I was talking about that with Robert McNaughton the other day, this like deconstructivist part and yeah. then the construction part that has, needs to happen afterwards. Exactly. So, so yeah, yeah, Indigo Children are the the destructors and then the Crystal Children are the constructors. <clears throat> um I think about yeah, Ken Wilber who's constructed this whole, you know, integral map of the of reality of a new, you know, way of 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 being. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just to throw a word in there, Ken Wilber is so, um, such an amazing philosopher and thinker and a lot of people haven't heard of him. So just give a shout out. Like he's kind of, he might be one of the most influential people that the average person hasn't heard of. Yeah. Cause I think so many, uh, teachers and philosophers and spiritual teachers today are really influenced by what he did, but they might not say that, or you might not know that when you listen to them. Right. And then he, I mean, he was influenced by so many people too. So it's hard to draw the line, but he was definitely a, a synthesizer. He took so many different ideas and kind of put them together. Yeah. Um, he was actually part of, if we, you know, when we get back into my spiritual crisis story, um, that whole thing, because I started reading him early when I was 18. Um, my dad gave me a, a book. Um, Which book? It was called The Simple Feeling of Being, okay. which is like a compilation of, it's a, kind of like a greatest hits, hits book. Yeah. Um, and that was part of just what really cracked my my egg open um and so yeah after the crystal children um there's the rainbow children and this is the uh, one that i identify most with okay um and the rainbow children are just kind of like these balls of like love and joy and fun and they're 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 <laughs> considered <Sounds> <laughs> yeah they're considered like new souls too and so like this might sound a little weird but i think like part of part of my problems like here on earth or because I'm like such a, a new soul, but like, like, so I don't understand a lot of like how things like work exactly. Um, and so like I've made, you know, I feel just like, you know, so many mistakes. Um, but I also like in, in this weird way, I think was created by old souls. And so like I, I was infused with like wisdom and, and compassion of old souls, but without like actual like firsthand experience of like how to, oh, to be in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so the, the rainbow children are also, they're called rainbow children because there's like many different aspects to them. Um, and they like, yeah, they have a lot of different like skills and talents. Um, and they kind of like, you know, if, if we, if we use the metaphor of like the, um, indigo children, like kind of breaking down the old stage and then the crystal children building, you know, a new stage, the rainbow children are kind of here just to like dance and sing on the stage and kind of like be a beacon of like the new, um, the new energy and the new like light that's coming down onto earth. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It just makes me think about, um, you know, it's like you just told a little story, you know, it's a way of explaining things. And I think there can be a lot of value to that. Like, and um, just like giving yourself a conceptual framework of like helping you understand like who I am and how I'm showing up in the world and how the world is organizing and kind of extending the benefit of the doubt to people so you can see people in a positive light mm -hmm. and then we can enact more positive versions of ourselves. Right. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, but you were going to share some of your own story. Yeah. So it was like reading this book. Were you meditating or doing yoga? Was that part of what precipitated this? So, um, as far as like, yeah, the whole spiritual crisis story, like, um, yeah, this, this childhood, um, where I was like basically in touch with a, some kind of <laughs> spiritual state in some relatively permanent fashion. Um, and what, what was that like? Like an expanded state where, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, so like, yeah, a very open state. Like literally I would go to bed at night. This was like up until around age seven. And I would like start entering the dream state and I would enter it consciously. And so I would have a lucid dream. I would watch the dream. Eventually the whole dream would fall away and there would just be this vast dark light. It's hard to describe, but it was like dark and and light at the same time. Um, Spaciousness. And I would just abide in that that openness. Um, As an eight-year-old. Yeah. And so, like, this would happen just, like, every night. And then, you know, I'd wake up and I'd go to school. Um, just, like, you know, like, everything was ordinary. And then, like, slowly that that access to that state just kind of <clears throat> naturally faded as I kind of got more, you know, just involved in uh, life. So that's fascinating. And I really wonder how many people have some version of that where when you're five, six, seven, you know, you have such incredible imagination and mm-hmm. play. and yeah. Maybe you can talk to God or an angel, or yeah. maybe you can think you can predict the future, or you think you can, you know, it's kind of magical thinking, but it's right. also beautiful. And then we grow older and kind of forget that and we lose some of that magic. And Yeah, I mean, well, there's magical thinking and there's, there is actually like being tapped into certain states. You yeah, know, there's I think this, they could both be true. Yeah, there's, yeah. well, there's this difference, you know, between waking up and growing up. And so mm. um, we can, as kids, be tapped into like a very real, very deep, state of waking up and it can be somewhat even stabilized. Um, and this, and who knows what this is based on, you know, I would say it's, it's based on some kind of like, you know, past life development or, you know, some kind of, some kind of karmic thing. Um, and this, this does not mean that I'm more like mature in any way. Like, you know, like my parents, you know, were, they've had so much more life experience than me, than me that they're, they're still like, you know, way more, uh, capable of doing things in the world and are more mature. Mm. So they're more grown up. But like, I, I think one of the challenges like for parents is often how do they, how do they really meet and attune to their kids? Because like, I felt like, like I wasn't seen in certain ways uh. because my parents weren't tapped into the same spiritual reality that right. I was. So this was a big part of your life and experience. I mean, it's a big deal. Like you're able to remember, be conscious in your dreams like that. It's something that you know, meditators might be trying for for decades and exactly. limited or no success. I mean, it's not easy to to be lucid in your dreams. It just kind of, for me, it will happen randomly sometimes. And then there'll be long periods of time where it doesn't happen. Yeah. I yeah. mean, even like, yeah, like Ken Wilber, after he wrote Sexology Spirituality, you know, one of his big books that I saw sitting up there, oh, um, yeah. he actually entered um, like an 11-day period or something where he was in deep dreamless sleep, like I was describing, he was able to remain conscious. So 24 hours a day, you know, remaining present and awake, you know, not mm. conking out. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. For how many days? It's like 11 days or something. Oh, that's hard to believe, but. <laughs> 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 so then you're 18 when this is happening? Is it kind yeah. of building up over time? Yeah. So um, when I was 12, I had this, this non-dual realization. Um, we had moved houses and, there was just this moment, um, this timeless moment where all duality fell away. Like there was no longer inside or outside. There was no space or difference between me and the clouds or the mountains. Like I was just all of it. Um, and this is also a weird experience for a 12 year old to have who doesn't have context for such a thing. Had you been exposed to different teachings around that? No, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so even though it was like the most obvious, ordinary, fundamental, like realization that I think anyone could ever have, um, I like, again, it like faded out of consciousness and it literally wasn't until I was 18 um, and reading Ken Wilber that I remembered 
having that that you know that event oh, wow. be, because finally I was given a context for it. Mm. Um, and so like we need context to even like know <laughs> our history or know anything about ourselves. Um, yeah. Well, you're speaking to interpretation and the meaning we give things and. If we grow up in a culture where there's no word or concept for these different kinds of experiences that we can all have, I can see how that could be destabilizing. Or yeah, or you could like default to like just thinking that something's wrong with you. Or, right. Yeah. yeah, what's wrong with me? Exactly. I mean, a lot of people feel that. I know I have, even though I'm without having any big experience, it's like you feel alienated or different. You're like, what's wrong with me? You know, like when you're a teenager. Exactly. Because I think our culture is so, kind of puts people in boxes. Yeah. And things are supposed to be a certain way and there's not... I mean, I think you're speaking to like a really big cultural piece that we are limited in our thinking and understanding of the possibilities that can happen, like the different kinds of experience we can have. Exactly. And that's that's what I um, I think I'm here to kind of shift is to kind of expand the categories and stuff for what people are allowed to experience. Cause that's part of the problem is that we're, we're only allowed to experience like a narrow bandwidth of, mm. of the full range of, of human right. experience. And if you go, if you go, if you venture outside of that bandwidth, it's like, watch out. Like you are, yeah, you're just putting yourself in a position where you could get labeled, you know, and um, mm. end up in a mental health system for, for years. Is that kind of what happened with you? Yeah. And so um, in, in a sense, like, um, I um I do put myself in the category of just like being someone who who thinks outside of the box and is a little eccentric and um I mean there I think there there were also like genuine pathology trauma stuff that you know mm. led to my crisis um what, what was the actual crisis like like you're 18 you're in high school yeah so this is transitioning from high school to college um mm. and there was a perfect storm I mean all all these things kind of converged um and, um, but I think like the biggest thing was like, when you move from high school to college, you're, you're kind of, you're stepping out of that, that safe family bubble into kind of like the greater world at large. Um, and that like me being as like open and as sensitive as I am, um, I, I think that was the first time where I was really touching the suffering of the world, um, like not just like you know it, this wasn't just like my personal suffering it was like i was waking up to like all the the collective history you know throughout the years and ages of of suffering mm. um and that just completely knocked me off my keister it was totally overwhelming um and so anyways like the whole first year of college like every cell in my body is telling me to like get out of there but i'm i'm overriding those impulses mm. um and I end up the summer after that first year, um, I went to like the self-development retreat um, and it was put on later. I found out it was put on by um, a, a company that has ties to Scientology. It's called Avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyways, during that uh, workshop, I was doing like an eye gazing practice with this they call them masters the people who are trained in this like specific modality Um, and it really opened up like some energy like a ton of energy got released in my system and I had this I let out this kind of primal noise and yada yada Um, I end up um, going home I mean there's some other stressful like things going on around this time too and um, I end up having a, a night where I don't go to bed at all I'm just like very paranoid journaling like crazy and drinking a lot of water um the next morning I, I'm acting very strange in front of my family and they get scared 
um, which makes me like, I was going over to my next door neighbor. I thought my next door neighbor was like my best friend. And, um, I was just like, you know, not making sense, you know, with like you thought that and it wasn't true. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I was in, I, I think I was like confusing uh, the kind of dream state. Like the, the dream state was like blurring with like the physical reality state. Mm. Um, and, and I wasn't able to, yeah, I wasn't really, I, I didn't have the capacity at that moment to, um, to stay grounded in the, in the, in the physical. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm just acting very strange and then they get scared, which makes me more scared, which makes them more scared. And like, it creates this, this sort of fear tornado, mm. which is one of the things too, that I, I would love to see like, um, some kind of, um, spiritual crisis team where like, instead of, cause like they, they, they were like get in the car, we're going to the hospital and, this is your family. Yeah. And like things got so much worse at the hospital, you know? And so it's like mm. what one thing I think we need as a culture is to have some kind of like um, <clears throat> spiritual emergency response team that understands <laughs> these kind of things. And so they can actually help relax and diffuse the situation rather mm. than like let it, you know, build up and get worse. Right. Yeah. It's so difficult. I mean, because I can understand the impulse of like you, like things are something seems off here and we want to help you let's yeah. go to the hospital where they'll help you yeah but then that experience can be in itself traumatic because you're being taken to this big institution you're being mm-hmm. locked i don't know what your experience was but people are locked down or locked in beds and yeah so i mean i'll get to that but yeah it is like this idea too of like how we outsource um outsource things like constantly it's like you know when we used to live in villages you know it's like you would take the person to like um, whatever the village healer or whatever, and, and, and they would, um, help you or like, um, you know, it's what about this idea too of like, you know, can we, can we become such like, um, skillful people that we can like, you know, like really ask, you know, do we need to take this person to the hospital? Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I, I even think about this, like when it comes to like, you know, gas in my car or something, I mean, like oil changing an oil change. It's like, it's so easy to outsource things to like an institution of like, you just do the oil change because whatever. Mm. But like, <laughs> honestly, an oil change is something I could learn to do and I could, you know, I could do it myself. Huh. Um, and so I think because of convenience, we have outsourced a ton of stuff that, right. that might not be for the best. Um, and so, yeah, I did end up in a straight jacket. Um, and oh, I, man. Yeah. And I got injected with Haldol, which is like a horse tranquilizer. It's really intense. Um, and so that was actually – and the reason that that happened was because, um, like, I was still drinking a lot of water. And so I was, like, rushing to the bathroom, and I was locking <laughs> myself in the bathroom to, to drink more water. And you can, I mean, you really can hurt yourself or kill yourself from drinking too much water. I don't know that I was actually at that point. Um, So they were justifying their actions by the fact that I was kind of like, I was, they were were resisting, like letting me go to the bathroom. And so I was kind of like, you know, trying to struggle to get there. Um, And they used that to justify the straitjacket. And like that you know, like obviously I was already suffering a lot to end up in that situation, but to, to be put in a straitjacket and to be injected with, you know, a tranquilizer, like that's like a capital T trauma. Like it was, and then, and then, you know, put in a 72 hour hold. Mm. Um, and I've just started, you know, coming out more publicly about this stuff. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you talking about it here because it's something that maybe a lot of people wouldn't want to talk about, but I think it's important because we never hear about what, like what happens when someone goes to the hospital like that. And yeah. What kind of protocols are in place? And, you know, I mean, if there is an abuse that happens there, how difficult that would be to address because who are you going to believe, you know, the hospital mm-hmm. worker or the 
person having a psychotic experience. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, and I ended up in like, you know, a 72 hour lockdown facility, which again, it's just like being like locked in a place too, you know, like that's, that's traumatic and, and around, you know, like we said earlier, other people who are. It's like jail a little bit. It's like jail. Um, yeah. And so, um, so, so yeah. And then, um, you know, that kind of started my whole journey of being on like these host of medications and, um, seeing all these psychiatrists and, um, yeah, it's, it's really, one of the things like I really want people to get about like the experience of this is that you you absolutely get treated like a second class citizen. Um, mm. When they tell you that you have this this lifelong mental illness that's going to require medication um, for your whole life, and like the doctors literally told me and my family to like drastically reduce the expectations and goals I have for my life. Um, Jeez, yeah, well, that's wild. Yeah, and so it's, like it's a big. Um thing to put on someone that the diagnosis the label the expectations you're talking about i mean i just it makes me wonder if you if someone hears that and believes it and then they adjust their own expectations you know exactly they're limiting themselves that's what scares me is how much yeah it's leading to people like um disempowering mm-hmm. themselves um and there are, I mean, there are a lot of people who actually willfully disempower themselves. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people who love the idea of like being on medication um, and like, you know, they, they, they want quick fixes or, or they don't want to like do a lot of the personal growth work that's required to like, mm. you know, be the, their best version of themselves. Um, and so it's, it's really easy to use medication as a cop out or use your diagnosis as a cop out. And some people genuinely are attracted to that. <laughs> that's a tricky, tricky mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Life is hard and it's could be a little bit of like the easy way out for someone, but yeah, not, um, not the ideal outcome. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, so you were told that and you clearly have defied that. Yeah. Um, I mean, now you have a master's degree, you're, you're working in the world, you're independent, you're not, I don't know where you are in terms of medication, but you're clearly not, you know, in the hospital or in a mental health institution. Yeah. Like by all accounts. Yeah. I'm doing really well. And I, um, like, the doctors, they they literally, yeah, they would not have um, recommended that I like get a master's degree, you know, like, and so um, I've already kind of this, defied expectations yeah. with, with doing that. Is um, part of the thinking there that stress could bring out another yes. episode? Yeah, and so that's that's part of the problem too. Is this like this this whole idea that like we should avoid stress, you know? Because like mm. like if we actually want to build resil- resilience, like we need to be going towards stress and not be afraid of stress. Right. Um, but yeah. It's easy that's, to get allergic to it. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you want to share what your did you what your diagnosis was that they gave you? Oh, I got bipolar one. Bipolar. Did that feel accurate to you or helpful? Or did... Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the part of the problem is that it's it's not descriptive. You know, these labels are prescriptive, so they prescribe different. Mm. You know, a certain medication or they prescribe a certain, you know, sort of like, um, regimen, but they're not actually describing, you know, what's going on for the person. And, and part of like, what's so frustrating is that like during this whole process, like no one actually wanted to like understand me, like to understand what my first person experience was. What people wanted to do was to explain me and to explain, yeah, everything that was going on. And so that's, that's part of the shift that needs to happen too. Cause if we want to build compliance with people, if we want people to be cooperative, like we actually need to understand them. Mm. Um, and the more that people actually feel understood, you know, the more that they're going to be willing to like (laughs) work with you and like, you know, um, 
um, yeah, cooperate. And so, yeah, that's, that's just sad, you know? And yeah. it's also like, um, the way the system is set up with insurance and with filing claims and like, okay, let's check off this mm-hmm. box, you know, bipolar type one, blah, blah, blah. Versus like, what's actually going on with you? Not putting you in a box. Like every, you know, talk about diversity. I mean, you're having maybe the diversity of possible experiences is probably infinite. And so yes. some of these boxes and labels are, are just limiting. Yes. And they can, maybe they can be helpful in their own way too. I'm not discounting it but it's like just really makes me question the whole system and if they're people who are actually really gifted and we're losing that yeah i mean i think i think we are and i think like i mean part of me i understand like that you can't necessarily have everyone like you know have their own name for a diagnosis but part of me did like <laughs> wish that i got like diagnosed with chrisitis um, <laughs> because like you know everything like is so specific you know to to my my, my situation and so like mm. um it's it's like you know it, there's all these reasons like that was part of what was so frustrating is like i wanted to like tell all my you know all these people all these these healthcare workers like there are so many reasons that this happened beyond your idea of like a chemical imbalance um, or a genetic thing. Like there's, there's, and and that's good news. Like the the fact that there are reasons why this happened mean that there's also reasons why I can move towards health. Because if there's no reasons why this happened, nice. it's just a genetic thing. Then there's actually like I don't have a path to healing. You know, mm. um, right? It becomes fatalistic. Exactly, exactly. And then there's also I take beef with like the word bipolar because like you know meaning that there are like two poles. It's like yeah, there's like two poles to to things. You know, like that's part of life. Like you know, there's there's happiness and sadness. There's love mm. and fear. Like there's we live in a world that is full of polarities. Right. And so um, you know, I mean, bipolar is basically saying that like um, someone is kind of exceeding the socially appropriate limits of both of those poles. Um, you know, the being up and being down. Um, and I also take issue with this whole notion of like mood stabilizers because, you know, I was put on these medications that they call mood stabilizers, but like literally the very definition of like mood is that it's not stable, that it's like always changing. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I always, I always found that, that really odd too. Um, but I get what they mean too. Like they're trying to keep your mood within, you know, this socially acceptable range. But I mean, if we, if we want to like, I don't know, if I just think about it, like what is really going on here and like just in a nutshell, it's like. If you step too far outside the lines, yeah. then here's a place where we're going to put you and we're yeah. going to keep you there and we're going to give you drugs until you can fit within these lines. And, exactly. And I get that. And I mean, if it was criminal, then you know, we have the jail system and this isn't that obviously. But I do see that we could have a more tolerant society with more avenues for more different kinds of personal expression. And to me, that's what like diversity is all about. And I think I think part of it is like we're in this uber individualistic, competitive, capitalistic state. Mm-hmm. And if you're not out there working and making money, then what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And what about making room for people who have a different kind of life that they they want to live? And that's who they really are. And that's how they're going to feel alive. And that's how they're going to contribute. There's, yeah, there's absolutely these like economic, you know, um, factors to, to all of this. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think I think that's that's a line too that that concerns me is like when it's when someone is not doing anything criminal they're not necessarily harming themselves or others but they're making other people uncomfortable and then like when that becomes like okay we need to control this person so that I feel <laughs> comfortable um that um yeah that that that's just like that's I think an area where people should be 
like we, we should challenge people to actually like expand their own comfort zone <laughs> rather yeah. than like, you know, completely, you know, control this, this individual. Right. Well, that's great. I mean, it's part of, part of your story that I'm hearing is like, you know, you went through this traumatic experience and you've come out the other side and you're, you're growing, you're exceeding expectations. And then you're also working to help improve the world in this way. And I think that can happen sometimes where when someone has trauma or a difficulty, then they get inspired to, to improve that, for, you know, not just for themselves, but for others. And mm -hmm. so that's to me is inspiring. Thank you for reflecting that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel, I still feel like I'm just getting started with this whole thing. Um, and it is like, you know, it, it does feel like, um, our trauma can either like win or, or we can like, you know, use it as fuel. Mm. So it's like, um, nice. and I, and I do still, I feel that battle very vividly where it's some, like some days it's just like, oh my gosh, like I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to whatever, quote unquote, make it, you know, um, yeah. beyond this. But then like, there's other days where I'm just like so inspired to like, like there, I, I I do believe that there are like very gifted people who are being, you know, misdiagnosed and whatnot. And that like, we need these people as leaders in the world. And so mm -hmm. like, I am inspired to like basically help these people like see through all the shame and all like the, the kind of misunderstandings that they've <clears throat> taken on. Um, and like actually like step into all the, you know, um, all, all the all the 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 things that like they were to to see the positive aspects in all of the things that they were um told to believe were you know just uh problems um, mm. yeah yeah absolutely yeah <sighs> so um let's see I'm not sure where to go next but you you eventually went to Naropa University mm -hmm. yeah I went to Naropa which you did too. Yeah, so we share that in common. Um, and yeah, and that was that was aligned with like this whole um, spiritual emergency thing. I'm taking my hat off. It's getting hot. Um, yeah, and, I mean, so just to talk about that, like the Naropa psychology program that we're both in is explicitly trying to bring together spirituality, altered states of consciousness. Right. I mean, it's called transpersonal. A lot of people don't know what that term even means anymore. So I think it's kind of going out of fashion, but it was, you know, going to be the the next wave of psychology and it's been hugely influential and a lot of what's now called positive psychology draws from what was called transpersonal psychology. I think like things like mindfulness, um, things like paying attention to dreams, uh, connecting with the work that Carl Jung did mm -hmm. and just connecting with the spiritual realm as well as psychological growth. And I think that's really inspiring. There's a lot of good intentions behind that program and what they're trying to do there. Yeah. And that's why I was attracted to it, um, was because I was like, this is going to, um, support my own, like, you know, understanding of the differences between spiritual emergency and, you know, pathology and, um, yeah. to also help that's, me. That's a great yeah. distinction to investigate. Yeah. Or like, I mean, another way to look at it would be like, if there's a, if there's an emergency happening, if there's a crisis happening, can it be transformed into a spiritual experience right. rather than a traumatic, like there's something wrong with you? Right. Yeah. I mean, from one perspective, we could look at literally everything as a, a spiritual crisis because everything is, you know, spirit. Um, but, um, yeah, it's like, I, I got attracted to, to Naropa, um, cause I thought it would like help me, yeah, move into, to working with, you know, this population in this field. Um, and, um, yeah, there was, um, you know, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I knew that, I knew that Naropa had meditation, 
Um, and so I was excited about that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I knew they had like a little bit of like reading Ken Wilber and just like other authors in general that like I was, you know, like Stan Groff and stuff that I was actually interested in. Mm. Um, and so all of that stuff, like I really appreciated um, about Naropa, but like any institution, you know, like it has a has a shadow. <laughs> and it's a lot of problems there, a lot of institutional problems. And I think part of what we experienced that maybe we'll talk about, I mean, I can speak for myself as like, I was there, what was it, 2016 to 2018, just maybe just this time. I mean, that was just a year ago. Like, there's so much, uh, I don't know, turmoil, Trump being elected, the reaction. So I think in these small liberal colleges across America, there's a certain amount of craziness that's happening around social justice issues and Mm -hmm. just like people really wanting to make the world a better place, which I appreciate. And then sometimes that gets turned into like, I don't know, like attacking people or judging people. Yeah. Or just it it can become nasty instead of helpful. Well, yeah, because part of the problem is that like people often want to make, they think that making the world a better place means like they have to, um, whatever, squash the evil. Um, And it becomes another us versus them, another bad versus good dynamic. It's so easy to fall into. And so you're showing how good you are by how much you kind of rage against the so-called bad. Exactly. And what I think maybe we're on the same page here, like what I think we really need to do is be integrating. Yes. Talking about integral theory, talking about transpersonal psychology, like the creators of these modalities and forms of psychology were like deeply interested in healing yeah. rather than continuing this ancient conflict between us versus them yeah. that's been endemic for the human species forever. Yeah, and you can't actually be a good person unless you're willing to like look at the the darkness within yourself. And so it's like there's there's all these these subtle and not so subtle ways <laughs> in which like we we love making enemies because it gives us a distraction from like seeing like the <laughs> the beast within. Yeah. Um Yeah, and to, and to play the devil's advocate or go the opposite of what I just said. There are times where we need to stand up against something and, yes. and speak out. I think what what I'm trying to speak to is it's one thing to do that like on a political level, like that can be great. Like if there's like, for example, police brutality, like let's have reforms, let's pass new laws. But having a protest, at, like for example, there was like, there was this like protest thing at, at Europa around the bathrooms. And so there are these students like agitating to build a third bathroom because um, for transgender people. Mm-hmm. And like, I support that. I can see the reason for that. But is that the best use of the resources of a school that's in, pretty bad financial straits anyway. We're in a small cramped building. There's two small bathrooms that aren't big enough as it is. Mm. Like, are, what are we going to do? Like take down a classroom to build a third bathroom? Yeah. Like, is that, so I'm just, but the atmosphere there was like, it felt, it would feel very difficult to actually say that because of this charged atmosphere. And like, it's almost like people are frustrated and they really want to do something and they don't know what to do. So they kind of turn against each other in this weird way. Cause I, th- I had thought going to Naropa that we would all be working together. Mm. And there was so much internal conflict and uh, tension that would develop around some of these topics and conversations um, that was really kind of dispiriting for me because then we end up accomplishing nothing. Exactly. We're just divided against each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I see <clears throat> that as like in, in some ways, like there's um, like people's own shadows are just getting activated and like everything is like coming out into the light. It feels like it's, it's actually getting harder to suppress like our unconscious or the darkness. And so it's like, there's um, there's just, a, it, it, I feel it in the culture. Like a lot of people feel much more 
on edge or short. Um, yeah, that's scary. It's scary. It is scary. I mean, it, it feels like, I mean, even like I live in Longmont now and like <laughs> there's been four times now. It's so weird. We're literally, I'm just like walking on the street or I'm walking at a store, um, minding my own business and someone gets very triggered <laughs> and activated um, by some something in my presence. And so I've been like cussed out and flipped off and like, and and like it's there's something like esoteric about it because I'm I'm literally just like <laughs> oh, you, got, you got cussed out and flipped off. Yeah, um, where did that happen? This is in Longmont. Like so, just oh, like wow. walking down my street, or you know, I smiled at somebody <laughs> and like he didn't like that. And so like, um, it, it it feels like yeah that 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 there there's less places, um, increasingly less places for people's shadows to hide, and those structures are kind of dissolving. Um, and so people are kind of popping and like, you know, and, it, and it's a good thing in a sense that this like, you know, this this anger and underlying because because that stuff is underlying anyways. And so mm. like we do need to get it out. But it's like, how do we get it out in ways that like we're not going to simultaneously like destroy each other? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just and I think part of what I'm speaking to is this phenomena that I see much more in the left than on the right mm. where uh, people on the left of the spectrum and who are really pissed that Trump is in office and they want someone new and. You know, I'm sympathetic to all that, but there's more of a tendency on the left to kind of attack each other and yes. kind of eat our own right? and tear each other down, whereas the right pre- presents a much more unified thing. They're all kind of lining up behind their leaders, and they're all kind of – it's just this um, – it's sad to see that, you know? Well, part of it's, the reason It's sad that, to see, yeah. like, like just Naropa as a microcosm, seeing someone – you know, I, I was for a year in the – I was the co – president of the student union of Naropa. So mm. I was involved in the student government. And so that's where some of what I'm talking about comes from. So I just had the experience of like myself and others, like kind of standing up, trying to organize, trying to get people to come together. And then this tendency to want to attack and tear down anyone who's taking a leadership position and how counterproductive that is. Like I just, yeah. I didn't realize that going into it, but like looking back on it, I'm like, man, that just kept happening over and over well, it's the it's the retribalization. I mean, that's one of like the the wildest things too. You know, when I think about like my experience of Naropa, sometimes I'm like, did I pay eighty thousand dollars to re- to regress <laughs> to a tribal stage of consciousness? Like, because that's that's partially what's what's going on there. I mean, it's obviously not the whole story, but like, huh. there is, um, you know, when you have these um, identity politics, you know, games going on, like it it necessitates like this regression to a tribal, you know, to tribalization where it's like, you can only be, um, identified with your tribe and the world is just all these different tribes that are vying for power. Like that's the only story that's going yeah, on. Such a cynical worldview. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why aren't we looking at like <laughs> compassion and wisdom and how to develop these things, you know, rather than just yeah. like everything is about power. Um, yeah. And so, um, that's, 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 I think a huge part of it is that like we, when we have these absolutistic beliefs, like like things that can just not be questioned, like anytime we have those, it's kind of like another just like watch out because um, that's going to like inevitably inevitably pull us down to the stage of development where those those beliefs exist, which is the absolutistic stage. Um, and so, like you know, something like like that power narrative often like it's you can't question it, you know, like if mm. you if you try to question it, then you're automatically the enemy. It's like, we can't have a debate that's actually like, yeah, considering, you know, all the sides and is hearing each other out. It's just like, you're, you're the bad guy if you don't agree with me. Um, Hmm. yeah. 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 I've got a lot of stories I could share. Um, did you have a a story you wanted to share? I did. Yeah. So when we, um, 
first like met to talk about doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, it was at some social event and <clears throat> you were wanting to like get some people's weird experiences at, at Naropa. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, so I had that idea as a, for this podcast and I kind of gave up on it, but because it was hard to bring it together or, but I, part of the impetus for that was like so many men that I talked to in Naropa, first of all, it's 80% women in the psychology department. So there's not a lot of men there. And then every man that I would talk to would have some story where <laughs> something happened that really wasn't right. And they and they had some reaction against it. I mean, I know it's off the top of my head. I, what was it like three three or four guys who, who dropped out, um, two or three guys who were asked to leave. Mm. And then, you know, multiple other guys who just had some experience where they felt kind of shamed for being a man, to yeah. put it bluntly. And you know, to varying degrees. And I'm not, I don't want to paint a black or white picture here, but it just was fascinating to me. And I was trying to think of a way to talk about that here on this podcast and bring that up because I think that is an unfortunate dynamic that is developing there. And I imagine it's developing it, happening in other kind of universities yeah. in this in this field. So. Absolutely. I mean, it's that whole idea of like, let's try to solve one prejudice <laughs> by like starting another one. And so <laughs> Naropa does. Right. It's kind yeah. of like a two wrongs isn't going to make a right exactly. kind of Exactly. It's like, yes, there's this history of patriarchy and male oppression and we should work against that but it doesn't mean that you get to be mean to the one guy in the classroom gonna right yeah we, we, i mean we really need to stop playing these win-lose games and start focusing on the you know the win-win-wins but anyways so yeah this story um this was i think it was the the first year um this was like in 2015 and so it was like a while ago and i feel like a very different person now um, but what happened was um, it was in the social and cultural foundations class. Mm. Um, and this is like the class where you are supposed to talk about like race and, you know, these kind of yeah. issues. Um, it's an important class and has good intentions behind it. Yeah. Um, I had that same class and it was the first semester I was a student there. Mm. And we're talking about all these social justice issues, racism, oppression, <clears throat> you know, things like homophobia, sexism. Um, and it was just the worst taught and worst facilitated class in my entire experience. It was really disappointing. It was, had two teachers and it was both of them. It was their first time mm. teaching the class. And um, just to share with people listening to this, there's a approach to education at Naropa where you're really trying to engage the students and have this like group conversation. And it can kind of degenerate into uh, like, what do you guys want to talk about? What do you guys want to do? <laughs> it's like a total, total lack of leadership and yeah. a total lack of a teacher actually teaching something. Yeah. And so that's where this class went. And then it, it just, it was just so poorly done. But just as an example, on the very first day of the class, we all stood in a line and the teacher read out a statement. And if it was true for you, you would step forward. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't true for you, you would step back with no preparation or context. And then we began to realize like these were all statements around you know, privilege. So if you're a man, okay, you step forward. If you're white, okay, you step mm -hmm. forward. And at the end of this experience, you know, if, did your parents go to college or at the end of this experience, there was two or three guys kind of at the front of the the classroom and a lot of people at the back. And one of the guys that was at the front of the classroom was a, a vet. Oh. And he actually came from, you know, a working class, poor family, but he was white. He had served in the army and he was up there at the front and he just thought that was such bullshit because he had had the work so hard his whole life. Yeah. And he was one of the people who ended up leaving after one semester at Naropa, partly because of that experience. And I felt bad for him. Like he, he wasn't seen or heard. He became this kind of symbol of, I mean, first of all, he's in the military. So that's hard for people to swear who are against the military. And so it just kind of went downhill from there for him. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing of comparing <laughs> suffering too. I mean, we need to stop because it's like, 
Yeah, it's like as if that exercise shows that all the people who are the furthest ahead have the least suffering and like the people, you know, behind are the most like right. oppressed. Like it does, I mean, it does show something. I mean, not knocking it entirely, but to do that on the first day before we yeah. build rapport with each other, before we know each other, and then the complexity that you're speaking right. of. I mean, lives are so complex. So this guy, he told me a little bit about his life and it wasn't an easy life, not at all. Right. You know, and he didn't, I mean, so it just, he, it wasn't fair for him. Yeah. Yeah, just an incredible amount of factors that come into play that more so than whatever factors were like presented in, in that right. demonstration. Um, so yeah, so I was um, in that class and I had a, a question um, and I'll do my best to like remember, yeah, the the series of events as they folded because it has been a while. Um, and so um, the teacher of this class um, was a black woman. I am a white man. Um, some might say a, a white man child. Um, <laughs> and I, I had this question around, um, if it's ever like appropriate for a white person to participate in the reappropriation of the N word. And so is this in a classroom, this is in a class. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, and I, and, and I was thinking about like why I even had this question and, and I think it had something to do with like, I was listening to like a ton of, of rap music at this time and, mm. um, there was, and so, you know, there's, there's the N word that ends in A and then there's the N word that ends in ER and the N word that ends in A, you know, is the reappropriated form that okay. means like friend or buddy. Um, but only if you are a black person. Yes. And so, um, I was like listening to a lot of rap music at this, this, this point, And like, I was like noticing like a lot of power in that word. And, and I would mm. Like be, you know, sometimes in the shower and I would start like singing a verse or something and I would notice myself like, you know, get to that and be like kind of like hesitate or anything. Really? Like, like what if my roommates hear me or something like that? And so mm-hmm. I'm that like that's that's where the question was coming from. It's just like, you know, um, there's also like that scene in Office Space, you know, where he's like in the car blasting like rap music. And then like he rolls up to like, an, you know, there's a black person. He rolls up this window and he's like, I got to stop. Um, and so <laughs> it was like this 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 question about like, um, yeah, just is it ever appropriate for a white person to to participate? It's interesting. That? I mean, I don't have like a lot of charge around this topic, but it just seems to me that the intention should be the thing that determines yeah. whether or not. I mean, if you use a word with a negative intention, then that's bad. And if, but it is. I understand the history and the symbolism and the power of that. And so I'm not. I think maybe there needs to be like this cultural wide healing or reconciliation process, where you know before that word could be used. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, one one thought I had is like maybe we should all yeah stop using the word. Or like another thought is like maybe we should realize that you know words are. Um, you know, maybe at some point we, we can like, uh, develop enough resilience within ourselves that like the words are, we, we recognize them as like just words. Um, but of course, yeah, various people have various traumas that can, can really affect them with, with certain, you know, sounds, um, and the, the meanings they associate with those sounds. Yeah. Um, so the story goes on to, um, so so when I asked this question in front of the class, I had asked it right after um, a fellow white male classmate um, was upset with the teacher about a grade on a paper that he got. Um, and so when I, I mean, the, the piece that I really want to hold um, where I think like I really like went wrong with this is that, is the timing of it. 
And so like I So, so you're in the social justice class. Yeah. Okay. We're it, it, called social cult social and cultural foundations and, right. and counseling. So it's it's an appropriate class to yeah. talk about this kind of issue. That's this what is the, the point cla- of the class. Yeah, is. Exactly. Okay. This if there was any class where you would like ask this kind of question, like this would be the this class. Is it. Yeah. But I think I really messed up with the timing of it. And so sometimes like I get really excited about things and like I feel like an urgency to like share. And so like I was feeling that pressure and like I was kind of like forcing the question, even though like the energy in the room was kind of like already tense and it probably would have been better to wait for another time. Um, So anyways, how this unfolded was that um, he's upset about a grade he got on his paper. And then I asked this question and the teacher basically writes it off as like, just stupid that I would even ask that question. Mm. Um, So there's no discussion or? No discussion. um, Like she was visibly... um, uh, offended, I don't know what the like right just, word is. Just like, asking the question isn't in itself offensive. Exactly. That's to me is problematic. Exactly. Um, and and I think that's problematic because like here I am, like I'm paying like eighty thousand dollars. I'm a student. I'm a here to learn. Of this class. Exactly. It's like teach me. Like this is this is the right. service that you have agreed to offer, and that I am here to like you know that I'm that I'm you know paying for. So would it be accurate to say that the atmosphere in that classroom was one in which? people were walking on eggshells and you're afraid to ask and yes. afraid to talk about things. And that to me is just the exact opposite of what that class should have been. <laughs> exactly. And I had the same experience. It was so frustrating to be paying money. And then instead of the teacher teaching you, it's like, okay, we're going to sit here. And if you say the wrong thing, then we're all going to um, call you out on it. But I'm not going to tell you what the right thing is. Exactly. Um, and I'm not going to tell you why it's the right thing either. I'm not, there's no logic. There's a lot of emotion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and I get too that like, you know, there is just like so much, so much trauma and so much, you know, like it's, um, I mean, I, I still really like this teacher and have a lot of respect. Like, and I did learn, you know, um, plenty in that class too. Um, That's good. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I don't want to like paint like a one-sided picture, but like, um, so what happened was, um, I like, yeah, the question got kind of poo-pooed. Um, and then like a couple of days later or something, I got, to, I got called in to like the, um, uh, who is it? The, the head of the department of the transpersonal, you know, Uh-oh. psychology. <laughs> and yeah. Maybe was, we should, uh, frame this too by saying that what there's maybe, I don't know, like a thousand students all together at Naropa University and in the transpersonal program, maybe a couple hundred so it's a small school. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you got called into their office, like as if yeah. you're in high school, did something wrong, and <laughs> yeah. they want to talk to you about asking this question? Yeah. And so I go in there, and it's, yeah, um, Carla Clements, and then my um, my academic advisor is there too. Um, and they basically inform me of how um, Valerie, the teacher, perceived that situation um, which was that because I asked the question after, you know, Dan, the student was upset about his, his paper, the teacher thought that I was asking the question because I wanted to see if I could call her that, um, because like, like to like defend oh, my, my white Well, that's friend. her projection. Cause you, yes. I mean, did you say anything that would lead her to believe that? No. Were you angry or were you wanting, did you call her any other name? Absolutely not. And so, so that's 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 wild. It was I wild. This is my first time hearing this. That's wild. It was wild. And um I actually broke down crying when I when I heard, oh, you know, man. the way that she perceived this because I was like I felt so bad that she would like that she would see it that way. Right. Um and one of the things that was like hard about this whole thing too is like the teacher Valerie like um never had like a direct conversation with me. Like never like asked 
Um, you know, and I, and I, again, like I get that, you know, there's, there's trauma involved and it, it can be really hard, but like, I wish that there was like a direct conversation to like actually mm. clear this out or like to build mutual understanding. So instead of uh, asking you where you're coming from, what's going on with you, she just kind of goes straight to the administration. Right. Um, and then to just to like give this a little bit more context, you know, being in this program to earn a master's of psychology, you're being evaluated, not just academically, but for maturity and for, you know, are you going to be a responsible, good person in the workforce? And so there are people who who get kicked out of the program, not just for academic reasons. I mean, obviously calling someone the N-word would be a good reason maybe to right. kick them out, but that's not what you did. Right. Um, yeah. And so um, I actually got um, assigned um, three or four anti-racist books <laughs> to read on my own oh, um, and to so, buy on my own. Some extra homework. Yeah. And so that, that irked no one, me. No one else in the class got that. No one else in the class got that. And so that irked me too because like, again, I'm already paying this inordinate amount of money and I already have so much reading to do. And so to be assigned like reading and to like purchase these books on top of that was just like when I, when I also didn't oh. like, you know, necessarily do something that like, you know. Was um, there an implication like if you don't do this, you might not be able to stay here? No. Or was there, that like a punishment? No. I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't feel like that. I mean, it felt like they had, they had good intentions and wanted me to just like raise awareness and stuff. Um, but it was still like, I just think it wasn't, it wasn't bad taste, you know, um, because it, it just wasn't, um, you know, like, like it yeah. wasn't it wasn't really called for. I think it's situation. fascinating. I mean, part of what I'm getting from the story is the N-word is so uh charged and so taboo yeah. that even asking a question yeah. about it in the context of a class in which you're talking about racism and these issues isn't okay. And I, I just can't help but my personal take on it is that that's counterproductive, that we should be having these conversations, even though they're difficult, and they should be able to be facilitated. And that's what you would be paying for a college class to have it facilitated by someone who's able to hear and respond to questions like that. Exactly. And you're not even using the word. Exactly. Um, and yeah, and, and and what they were trying to see, help me see too in this like meeting was that like um, they they were trying to help me see like <laughs> that it, it, it's never a good idea to like ask that kind of question to like a black person. Um, and that like, you know, that what we have is, you know, this very rare opportunity to like, you know, learn from someone who, you know, has firsthand experience with being black and like that I should be more sensitive to that. Um, but yeah, I think it comes back to this thing of like, well, this person's my teacher, though, and that's what this class is about. And so it's like, you know, um, I yeah. I personally think, yeah, like I, I should. So do that. according, I mean, just to try to look at that with logic. If the class was being taught by a non-black person, you can ask that question. But if it's taught by a black person, you can't <laughs> ask that question. And how does that make sense in the context of a class in a college? Right. Master's level graduate degree college. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I get that that could be sensitive for sure and yeah. difficult. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was pretty much the story. And like one of the hard hard things about it too was um, – so this teacher actually relatively shortly after this happened ended up leaving Naropa. Mm. And um, I think that, you know, part of it was be was due to this, you know, this incident. Um, I think it was other stuff too. Um, but w one thing that was really hard is that, like, it, it felt to me, I mean, I might be paranoid, but, like, I did, um, it did seem to me like this story was getting, like, spread around. Mm. Um, and that, and that people... It's such a small school. Yeah, it's so small and, like, um, like I, I do think that, like, people were blaming me for her, her leaving. 
Um, and so like, that was just like, just having that sense of like, like, cause, cause you don't know like how the story is being told and what's maybe getting twisted around and stuff. And so, um, yeah, I just remember like, um, yeah, that, that kind of creating a, a strange atmosphere. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 It's, it's, a uh, it's just interesting to hear about. And, um, I have another story I can share from Naropa along these same lines. Yeah. Uh, there was a student there who was involved in the student government. They were very passionate about these social justice issues. I guess they were, yeah, they, I mean, they were what you would call a social justice warrior. I don't mm-hmm. mean that in a derogatory way. And they did, they were, you know, they were doing good work around that. And um, they actually got a an award at the end of the year for, I forget what it was called, but like most engaged student around social justice issues. And they, in the graduation ceremony, were presented with this award. And um, so that's all, you know, that's all good. But I don't know how to, I guess I'll just tell the story. I mean, I was friends with uh, a black woman who was a student there at Naropa and um, I got to know her and we hung out together some outside of the classroom. And she told me that this student who was so concerned about these issues, um, like they'd been at a meeting or something together and she, <laughs> and she told the student, like, you don't have to look at me. You don't have to honor me with your gaze. Like, and how weird that was for the black student to hear and like she was coming from a place of like I'm a white person, so you don't even have to look at me to like try to make her feel better. But it had the exact opposite effect. Yeah, and it made her so aware of that dynamic. You know, it's like yeah. But it, it's just to me that's a story of illustrating someone who's like so obsessed with these issues that they're and they're denigrating themselves to try to make other people better. And it doesn't. It just doesn't work. Like that's not the answer. Well, yeah. I mean, and it made her, it made the, the black student really uncomfortable. <laughs> it worse. It made it worse for her. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you mean I don't have to look at you? I, I, you know, how do you respond to that if someone tells you that? <laughs> it like, yeah, I mean, it like. Because she, she's coming from this place of like not wanting to take up too much space. I think that's yeah. it. White people are taking up too much space. And. But all of a sudden you can like create a dynamic that wasn't even like there. Like you can like, right. yeah. <laughs> like, um, like they had been acquaintances and now things are like way more awkward. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Part of the problem is that, like, people have this idea that, like, you know, power or privilege is, like, just bad in general um, and that, like, no one should have it. But, like, actually, like, privilege is, like, really good as long as you are giving back to the world to the degree at which you are privileged. And so it's like, you know, people, what we need people to do is like really own their privilege and own their power and, like, actually step up to the plate to, like, um, leverage you know, those, yeah. those privileged identities and ways that are going to help everybody, you know? Right. Yeah. I guess I can say like my thoughts about it and I'm learning more and growing all the time, but I think, you know, ideally we are creating a world where we're all privileged. Yes. And so rather than taking someone who has, or is perceived to have more privilege and tearing them down, let's build everyone up. Exactly. Like we can all take up space. We can all talk and have our voice heard. Like that's a good thing. Exactly. And if someone is feeling entitled because of the color of their skin, then we can talk to that it might be appropriate for them to listen more and talk less if someone's taking up too much space but um i don't know ideally that would be like an individual thing it wouldn't be based on you know on their on the color of the skin i mean the other part that that got to me at naropa and some of these conversations would be like someone would say something or i would say something and then rather than responding to the content of what i said or the ideas or the topic i was trying to raise they would respond to like oh you know you're a white male you're heterosexual and talk about, and you know, that always becomes the subject. Yeah. And so that it's difficult to have a conversation then. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, you create this atmosphere where the only people who are allowed to talk and, and 
approach approach different topics are people who belong to one of these oppressed groups. Which is racist to like to, to exclude certain people's ideas. Um yeah, I mean, it's, I don't a, know it's a way of like dismissing. I don't know if dismissing. it's dismissing. Like Maybe a racist, racist is too exactly. extreme. But, but yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, like like you said, like I don't want to exaggerate. It's not always like that, but it's just it would be frustrating, like in the in the context of the multicultural class to have a reading to ask a question about the reading and then the discussion that ensues has nothing to do with the reading or the question I asked, but about, you know, our identities there in the room. That's just where it would always go back to. Yeah. And sometimes that can be good. And, but to always do that, like it was too much. Well, like we were talking about, like, um, Martin Luther King, you know, was, was famous for saying that he hopes that his kids are, are judged by the, <laughs> the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Um, and it seems like in a lot of ways, like that idea has like been thrown out by, you know, the, I know it seems like yeah. it's I don't see many people I didn't hear many people like advocating for that right yeah like what happened to that exactly exactly he's like this great um, leader and he articulated these ideals very beautifully and uh, yeah it just seems like it's going in some weird directions mm-hmm. where instead of treating each other try, making an effort to treat each other equally where people seem to be making an effort to treat each other differently based on all these different constantly shifting categories and yeah um, yeah I mean, and the, the other thing I experienced that was interesting and disconcerting to me was like I'm, I'm you know i'm part jewish and um so that's a part of my background i had family in the holocaust and seeing how i would be treated differently before and after sharing that information <laughs> yeah and it didn't actually feel good to me yeah because i just wanted us to all be treated as people we're all have something to value to offer we can listen to each other and you're going to listen to and take what i say differently if i fit into one of these oppressed categories or not it's just, right it just it doesn't feel Something about it doesn't really feel good to me. Does it not feel good because you feel like you, um, like that's not something that you've, like like these other quality traits, like you've actually cultivated and earned, and like the Jewish thing is kind of something that's just pressed upon you. So you're like, it's why does it matter? Like, yeah, I mean, I think it does matter, and it's worth talking about. I just, I just have this belief that, like, if we're having a conversation about ideas, like that we can talk about those ideas, and it shouldn't matter that much the various identities of the person saying them like we should be able to talk about them beyond just that yeah like it's like every sentence or statement has to be qualified by as a <laughs> right. you know woman or as a man and like sometimes that's relevant but sometimes it's not totally <laughs> yeah i mean it's still it's like this over focus on like surface surface features i mean part of I mean, these are some of like ken wilber's ideas um you know part of like the the whole postmodern thing is that, um, you know, we are basically um, looking for equality, like, everywhere. And so it's like, we need to have an, you know, if the percentage of the population is like, you know, what, 14% black or something, then at this institution, we need to have like 14% of the people be, you know, black. Mm. Um, And like, it's like, everything needs to be completely equally represented, which ignores like the fact that sometimes like, people just have like there's a natural variation in people's interests mm. and and also in people's like um in people's development people's inner development people's like um like i think i think we need to start like shifting to a focus in like if we really want to end racism you know it's like there needs to be a shift in focus to helping people like develop their interiors to actually become to have more complex minds, to have more caring hearts, you know, to actually like be able to to take more perspectives, um, and so like to to it's the question is more like how do we do that because 
what we have is like, you know, the modern mindset that's all about like freedom. Like, you know, everyone yeah. should have like the freedom of speech and, um, you know, like we fought really hard to like have these freedoms. Um, and then like the postmodern is like actually very against, you know, like having freedom of speech um, or, um, you know, the, the modern also is like about, you know, having equal opportunity, whereas the, you know, postmodern is about having equal outcome. Um, and so those yeah. those two camps are yeah. like at it's their a complicated conversation. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's just like the question becomes like, how do we actually like balance having freedom and equality? Um, because like, you know, in some like, you know, like if we have like a completely, you know, open borders policy of like, you know, everybody can come here, you know, we're all inclusive, you know, that could create problems, you know, where it's like, you know, there's increases in like sexual assault or there's increases in, in various like violence or thefts. Um, and so it's like, we do need like a discriminating mind where it's like, yes, like let's, um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's be like inclusive, but let's also like use discrimination. Um, yeah. 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 It's a complex topic. I mean, I think I think on the positive side, we're more and more aware of these issues, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people talking about them. And I hope that our society moves in a positive direction, that they get better. Um, but uh, I guess part of part of the irony of it for me is like, and there's this book I was going to read from that talks about this, but like, we ha we do have so much to be grateful for in this country. Mm -hmm. Like, there are a lot of problems, but there's the amount of like the negative perception of our country and where we're at seems beyond what the reality is. Mm. And I think part of it's, you know, comes from like, we don't, as Americans, we don't travel that much. I mean, we don't mm -hmm. get to experience conditions in other countries, but yeah, I mean, the example for me is India. Cause I got to study abroad there, um, which I was really grateful for, you know, it's an example of my privilege. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people don't get to have that experience, but I got to see firsthand the, for lack of a better word, racism, classism, yeah. uh, you know, caste system, religious discrimination happening there on like a level that just you don't see here i'm not saying it doesn't exist here but like right. it it just seems like I, I really do believe we have and are continuing to make progress in these areas and they actually have like <clears throat> racism and sexism built into the laws in some of these countries oh, absolutely and so when yeah. you hear like you know people in, in america talk a lot about systemic racism but we don't actually have any laws built into the system you know that are that are racist or right sexist. We, we at least have the legal ideal of yeah. equality and there's something to be said and appreciated about that's not perfectly implemented there's right. room for improvement clearly right but just the fact that we're having this conversation on a cultural level is great it's actually a good thing yeah there's a lot of countries in the world where that's not you're not allowed to talk about this stuff yeah and i think i would say too like the good thing about people even though we have it pretty good here and people still wanting things better, it's like I think people can intuit like a future that they know is possible. Yeah. And they're kind of comparing the present not to like the rest of the world, but to the future that they intuit. Um, and so like I, I would say that's a positive thing because like that is the direction that we're heading is to this much, you know, um, more beautiful place. But like, um, yeah, it's 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 not it's not exactly a balanced view of, of how good things are here. Yeah. But, and I wonder if part of that is a lot of people, like, you know, myself included, it's hard to feel that sometimes. Like, because yeah. the news is so negative. Yeah. It's just so much things that are easy to take for granted. Yeah. Um, That's so. why gratitude journals are yeah, wonderful. Yeah, gratitude journaling can be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, great. Is there any other things you want to mention on the topic? I appreciate you sharing that story. So just like wrap up this part of our conversation. I mean, I think obviously racism is a terrible thing. And mm -hmm. part of my point here and talking about it is to just try to have open, honest, vulnerable conversations about it, because I believe that that can help 
healing to happen on a deeper level. And um, I'm concerned about topics becoming so taboo that they're not talked about. Yeah. And I wonder if that is, you know, making things worse. And if people, when they are talking about it, are being shamed for asking a question, to me, that's just that's just counterproductive and it's wrong. And so that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. But I do think that um, racism is a problem. You know, I do think that there are privileges that people get that they don't deserve. Um, so, yeah. But just like I said, like, can we help everyone to have the same privileges rather than go go up a level rather than take everyone down? Yeah. And also to have more like subtle views on on privilege <laughs> itself where like, you know, there are there are downsides to having privileges, too. You know, like some people that have a lot of money get into these horrible drug addictions because they can afford yeah, <laughs> drugs. That's true. I know someone who inherited a ton of money when their father died, which was tragic for them because their father died when they were like, I don't know, 23 or something. Um, and they inherited all this money. Um, and yeah, addiction has been a big problem for them and a lot of other, and isolation. I think sometimes having a lot of money can make you more isolated. Yes. Because you don't have to interact. You can just pay for it. You can pay for someone to clean your house. You can pay for food to be delivered. You can pay for your little yeah. vacation to be planned. You don't have to do anything, but you kind of become less functional. <laughs> yeah. And like one of the upsides to like being oppressed is that like you can actually get more of a sense of community because you actually have like these other people who are like in the <clears> trenches <throat> with you that like, you know, it's mm. like, you know, you guys are like fighting a common cause and have each other's mm. back um, where it's like if, if people are like whatever in the privilege group, like they don't necessarily have that sense of camaraderie and brotherhood. That's interesting um, points. Yeah. 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 And also just that like, um, so like the only, um, the, sa- the only like sane place to start too. Um, is that we all have biases, you know, like we all have mm. these different, like, um, right. these different, these different life experiences that have shaped our views. And so like we, re- right. it's really insane to like, try to take this view of like, um, you're racist and like, I'm not, or you're, you're, you're biased and I'm not. It's like, we it's have like a human problem that we all yeah, have. Yeah, exactly. We all grew up with little things. And, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, let's just, you know, all be willing to like, you know, look at our, our own stuff and eat our humble pie and yeah. Mm. Nice. Yeah, I like that. And uh, switching topics a little bit, you're also, you create videos online. Like you have a YouTube channel. You want to mention that? Yeah, I have a YouTube channel. Um, All my art is hosted on um, a website too, chrisemersonart.com. And then I have a a website for my coaching business, chrisemersoncoaching.com. Um, and yeah, and I make, I make these like weird videos and I also write poems and I kind of like use the art side as just like, um, an outlet for that whole, like, you know, uh, right brain, you know, creative side of myself. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's, um, check it out. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think, I don't see a lot of people like, you know, doing the kind of, um, stuff that I'm doing. And so I think yeah, it's creative. Yeah. Um, cool. I'll put a link on the, on the website for that. Thank you. And, uh, thank you so much for being on. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. You're a great interviewer. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you appreciated this episode and other episodes on this podcast, please consider making a donation at our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. To learn more about this podcast and to get links and notes on each episode, visit astateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and relationship coach, please visit www.julianocean.us